And the health uh, experts say the best way to slow the spread is to maintain social distancing and to wear masks. However, wearing a mask um, was politicized and it came to be at the forefront of the culture war raging in our nation. The people who are refusing to wear masks says, well, it's an infringement of my freedom, right? You know, you cannot make me wear a mask if I don't feel like it, if I don't want it. It's within my right not to wear them, right, if I don't want to. And so that's how they frame this issue, even though it's really about public health, right? It's about the, the issue is the public health. And believe it or not, 1 Corinthians has something to say about this. Can you imagine in a, living in the 21st century in the United States and the book that was written 2,000 years ago has something to say about this issue? The 1 Corinthians tells us that as Christians, our personal freedom and exercising of our rights are not the only considerations for us Christians. You know, chapter 8 um, you know, as, as we have uh, gone over, it's about the food offered to the idols. And that Paul says, basically, that make sure that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to, to other believers, to the, especially the weak uh, brothers. Right. So even though you may be free to do so, you should not exercise your freedom. If that's your exercise of your freedom, will be a stumbling block to other people. And in chapter 9, Paul says that even though he has every right to be supported by the Corinthian church, because as an apostle who planted the church when there was nothing there, he went to the, the city of Corinth and he planted the church. He's a founding pastor or, 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 or the founder of the church. So he has every right to be supported by the Corinthian church that's his, within his right, but out of his pastoral concern, he gave up that right for the sake of the gospel, right? So that he didn't want to burden them. So he also talks about not exercising his right. If anybody of all the people that the Corinthian church has been supporting, he's the one who should be really supported. And yet, he has relinquished his own right. So uh, that, that is what's been going on. And yet, the Corinthians, uh, the, the Christians, were insisting on their freedom and their right. And they were justifying uh, their practice of participating uh, in the uh, idol feasts. It did not really matter to them that, uh, matter to them that it was really causing fellow Christians to stumble, especially maybe the new ones, new, new converts, right? And... Um, but say, well, you know, my theology is solid. I know what I'm doing because, you know, idol is nothing. So it's perfectly okay. And I, as a free man, as a free Christian, it's within my right to eat the food that was sacrificed to idols. So when people were insisting on it, once again, um, just like he said in uh, chapter 6, 12, verse 23 says this, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, they say but not all things build up, right? They were arguing, 
hey, it's, it's lawful. I'm not doing something that's illegal. I am free and it is lawful to exercise my right. So I am eating meat offered to idols. Paul says, reminding them again, not all things are helpful. It does not build up. It does not edify the church. And if it doesn't, then you should stop. If that's the case, that we abstain from exercising our rights for the sake of other people. And that's what Paul is saying. You know, this passage shows us that there are at least uh, more than that, but there are two overarching principles uh, uh, to, to go by as Christians. So when, whenever we are in doubt, whenever we are not sure of what to do in certain situations, we need to go by these two overarching principles. The first one is seek the good of others over your own. The first point is seek the good of other people over your, your own. In verse 24, Paul says, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Resist your natural tendency to seek your own good. Rather than seeking your personal advancement, pursue the greater good. You know, our sinful nature um, firmly establishes selfishness at the core of our being. Sin is basically a declaration to God that He's not on the throne of our hearts. We are. I'm on my own throne, right? That's what we are declaring to God. And that's what sin is. It is self-centered. It's self-righteous. It's self-directed. And it is self-seeking. It's all about me, myself, and I. First. I come first. And I decide what is good for me. I decide what is important to me. And I call my own shot. Do what is advantageous to me. And I'm going to do what pleases me. Right? That's what sin says. And we are deeply entrenched. We are steeped in our selfishness. And because we are full of ourselves, people often get in the way of achieving what we really want, right? Why is marriage difficult? Why is marriage a, uh, such a hard work? And, you know, we have a couple of, like, newly married, and you, you get to find out, if you haven't already, <laughs> that it is a hard work. Why is that? It's because our selfishness rears its ugly head, and it demands, our selfishness demands our spouse to comply with our own agenda and our desires. We basically say, you know, this is my expectation of you, and so you better meet that, right? And I want it done my way, in my timetable. But I love you, right? That's what we say. That's our attitude, and because of our selfishness, that is uh, uh, surfacing, you know, we, we, and then both parties, right, and so we clash, and difficulties and struggles arise. The sinfulness in us prompts us to look out, to look out for our self-interest at all times. You know, subconsciously, even though you may not say it outright, subconsciously, 
It's me first and then someone else. Even though we may not say it outright, subconsciously, that's what we do. You know, Adam and Eve, before the fall, they didn't know what sin was like. They didn't know what it felt like, how to behave. They did not know what it was like to be sinful. They had no idea because before, before they disobeyed God, they were in perfect world. They did not know what sin was. Vastly different from us because we were born sinful, right? From our birth, right? We are, our nature was very sinful to begin with. Before Adam and Eve, when they were first created, they, did, they were not sinful. But after their fall, and when you know, God you know, sought them out and said, what is this that you have done? What did they do? Self-preservation took over. Did either of them really take the fall for what had happened? No. Adam, when God uh, asked Adam, Adam said, oh, it's not me. It's actually, he was, uh, he shifted blame to God and Eve, right? It's a woman that you created, right? She's the one who made me eat this fruit. It's not my fault. So Eve, of course, now has to turn and shift the blame to the serpent. It wasn't me, it's the serpent. This is all about, even there at that moment, right? the self comes into play, subconsciously. Sin places self first and foremost at the expense of someone else. What does the greatest commandment say? What, you know, throughout the scripture, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor. Love God and love others. That's what God commands because a sin deep inside is about self, being on the throne where God should be. To defeat sin, we needed demonstration and power of selflessness, and that none of us had because we are so steeped. We are so in, deeply entrenched in self-glory. It was all about me, myself, and I. So we couldn't, we were not able to do it. We could, could, we could even possibly fathom what it was like to be selfless. But the gospel tells us that God has demonstrated his love for us. Sinners, by sending his son, Jesus, and Christ, for his part, he did not seek his self-interest, but sought the will of the Father, even at the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, even though he was just crying out to just take this cup away, the cup of suffering away from him, he was so tormented, he was so agonizing, it was so difficult for him, and yet, in the end, it's not about my self-interest. He sought, not as I will, but as you will. It is really for, the, for your glory. So he has demonstrated the selflessness. And he did it. He obeyed, to the will of the, obeyed the will of the Father, even unto the point of death. When he, as the author of life, he had every right and every chance, even leading up to the very moment that he gave up his spirit, 
he could have said, okay, that's, this is enough, too much. I can't believe that I am being you know, forsaken by my own father. And the people that I'm trying to save, they're they are making fun of me, right? Heaping insults, right? Forget this. And yet, even unto death, he obeyed. He showed us, demonstrated what selflessness looks like, what true love is like. And now, as the redeemed people of God, we are called to do likewise, seeking the good of others, not our own, but seeking the good of our neighbor. So how does this play out in everyday life? For, for Corinthians, right, so that, that was the issue here. So, you know, Paul is being also very practical, right? So for Corinthians, uh, one of the issues was eating meat offered to idols. Corinth uh, was about religious pluralism, right? There were many different, like, idols, many different temples people, that people went to. There was Judaism. And then there was, like, small but growing presence of Christianity. So for the, the small number of Christians, they were surrounded by all this religious pluralistic society. So what do they do, especially when there are so many, a lot of meat that they see or in the meat market was offered to idols already? What do they do? Do they eat it? Do they not eat it? So practically, how does this really pan out? So what do you do? And in verse uh, 25, Paul says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, right? And in verse 27, if, uh, I'm sorry, so 25, there's, it says, just eat it, right? Eat the meat that's uh, it, it, in the public market. Don't raise questions, just eat it. In spite of his strong words against taking part in idolatrous feasts, um, because you know, to him, not that idol, that the image itself, that the wooden figure or the stone made of, that's nothing, but the, the principle behind the practice of bowing and just worshiping those idols is demonic. So he has a strong warning against that. Right? Do not participate in the idolatrous feasts or the, the worship. But he doesn't want the Corinthian Christians to be, to be overly scrupulous either. Don't just go around and ask, hey, is this meat, uh, is this really come from the, 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 the temple, like after the feast, sacrifice to idols? He's saying the fact that food is offered to an idol does not change what that food is. It is still part of God's provision, God's creation. Right? And he says in verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It is a quote from Psalm 24, verse 1. The, Lord, uh, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Any pious Jews at that time, before they ate any meal, they would recite this blessing, that all of it, all of that they are about to receive, it comes from the Lord. It is part of God's creation. So therefore, if you say that, right, that all that they are about to receive is from God himself. God is the ultimate provider and the sustainer 
of our lives, that there is no need to ask around and be so scrupulous. Oh, you know, I just I have my conscience. I'm a Christian, so is this a meat that was offering? Okay, forget it. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to buy from you, right? He's saying they may freely eat what God has provided. But that there's an exception to the rule. And it is if you are invited to a non-Christian uh, house and the host gives the food to you and nothing has been like mentioned about the food, the meat that you are about to receive, don't ask, hey, did you just um, offer this, uh, or is this meat offered to idols? Don't even ask that. Just receive it with thanksgiving. The only exception is if, when you are invited there, if someone brings it to your attention that the meat has been offered in sacrifice to idols, then you do not eat it. That's the only exception to the rule. For his sake, Because if you eat it, then the man who informed you, he may be a Christian or he may not be a Christian. We don't know. He didn't specify which one. But it doesn't matter that you still do not eat it for his sake because that person might think that you may condone or maybe by you eating it uh, and knowing that that they know that you are a Christian and you you say that to, to you, it's been brought to your attention, then you may be, they may think, that you are willing to participate in the worship of idols. Oh, so the Christians, they can, I guess, worship idol and worship God at the same time. Oh, so that's what it means to be a Christian, right? You don't want to give that false impression. So for his sake, for his conscience sake, for the good of the, bro- uh, the person who brought this to your attention, do not eat it. In eating meat that has publicly been known to have been offered to idols, you may, offend that, uh, you, you may offend the conscience by causing him to think that it is okay to eat it, even though he may have doubts. If he's a Christian, or if he's not a Christian, he may think that Christian worships both God and a pagan idol. So whether he's a Christian or not, you are stumbling that person. It is right to abstain so you may not cause that person to stumble. And that's how you seek the good of other people in this particular situation. I, you know, last, uh, this past Friday, our uh, small group was talking about uh, this a little bit. And then, so, why are we talking about meat, right? But we're just talking about the specific, you know, instance here that Paul is talking about. But the principle is, is to seek the good of others over your own. Humanly speaking, it may seem wrong for a strong Christian to bow to a weaker brother. That just doesn't seem fair. Why do I have my, why should my conscience be bound by that of someone else? That's just not fair because I have a really strong faith in the Lord. But you see, Paul is arguing if you seek, by, by you seeking the good of the brother, you are glorifying God. That is the issue with him. That is the concern with him. In all the, whatever that you do, right? If you do not, by you not stumbling or causing that brother to stumble, you are by your uh, abstinence, you are glorifying God, right? Because if you cause that brother to stumble into sin, 
that does not glorify God, even though you may have the right theology, right? Self-restraint and abstinence for the sake of other people go a long way. So even though we may be free to do a lot of things, things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Not everything builds up. It does not edify people. So this has many implications, right? Within the church, serve. Right? If you belong to this embrace ministry, then you are called to serve. Whatever the gift that God has given you, and surely God has given all of us different variety of gifts and the talents that you use it for the glory of God. And that's how you seek the good of other people. If you have heart for children, volunteer for children, youth, or even if you have heart for other fellow brothers in, in, in embrace ministry, then make yourself available. Seek the good of other people, other brothers and sisters. But it does not really just uh, it's remain only in the church, right? Beyond that, the neighbor. You know, as we know from the, the, good, the parable of the Good Samaritan, when the guy was asking, who is my neighbor then, right? Because at the time, the teaching and the conventional wisdom was, love your neighbor, that commandment to Jews was fellow countrymen, fellow people, fellow Jews. That's where they're restricted to. So who is my neighbor? When they were thinking, they were thinking their neighbor was the fellow Jews that they, they came in daily contact with. But Jesus defies and crushes that kind of ethnocentric or very like, you know, our own people kind of thing. So it's the Samaritan, the people that kind of look down upon second-class citizen, people who did, did not, you know, they are no way near close to the chosen people of God, the Jews. But Jesus says it was a good Samaritan that was a true neighbor to the person that was um, suffering on the road. So when Paul says, seek the good of your neighbor, he certainly includes not just the people in the church, but outside the church. That includes our neighbors, right? It includes people who are in need in different parts, maybe in the inner city. It includes people who are literally our neighbors, right? Who are living next door. It includes people who are um, without voices. Maybe the Latino uh, people, people, uh, uh, you know, the black community. Right. underserved, underprivileged people, stand up for them. Right? We have to seek the good of our neighbor, not necessarily people who are within our immediate like, you know, circle, but even beyond. Right. Seek the good of other people. That is the principle that we are to go by. And the second principle is... Uh, the second principle is to, uh, to live for God's glory, right? Live to glorify God. And that is the, the second principle that Paul is talking about. In verse 31, he says, So whether you eat or drink 
or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Regardless of what we do, be it drinking or eating, whatever it is, our exercise of personal freedom must be governed by whether it will bring glory, glory to God, whether it will build up the church, whether it will encourage the unsaved to receive Christ. And herein lies the crux of Christian calling. Our ultimate purpose, our ultimate goal in life, it's not us making it into heaven, right? Avoiding hell is not our ultimate goal or purpose in life. It is to glorify God. And in the Westminster uh, Catechism that establishes fundamental tenets of Christian faith, the very first question that it asks is, what is the chief end of man? What is chief end of man? What is our primary, main goal in life? Why do we exist? For what purpose? It answers, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy God forever. John Piper made a famous assertion in his book, Desiring God. Man, that book really, like, really just woke me up you know, in, in college days. Um, and he makes the assertion that we glorify God by enjoying Him forever that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him, when we really just look into and behold His beauty, His splendor, His majesty, and understand what He has accomplished for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. When we look into that and get deep into it and come to a deeper understanding and appreciation, that's when we are satisfied. And the more we are satisfied with God, God, you truly are the only one. You are my strength. You're, uh, you're my first love. You're my everything. My heart belongs to you. So the more we are satisfied with him, the more glorified God gets. And that's his main point. You know, God's goal, you know, did you guys know that God has a, had a goal? And that is his glory. God's goal is his glory. And therefore, our goal is his glory. Now, this needs some careful explanation because it is easily misunderstood when it says God's goal is his glory, right? It points to a purpose. His goal, his purpose is for his glory. And I'm not talking about divine egoism, right? Oh, worthy is me, right? It's all about me, 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 me. That's not what he's talking uh, what, I'm what I'm talking about when I say God's goal is his glory. You know, there's a, a popular uh, Christian song, popular praise song, What a Beautiful Name, right? Uh, and, and I really like the tune and all, but then I, I get really troubled by the part of the, uh, the lyrics because there's a part that goes, you did not want heaven without us. So Jesus, you brought heaven down. Jesus didn't want heaven without us, so Jesus brought heaven down, right? It gives, no matter what the, you know, the author may have thought of, but it gives the impression that Jesus was needy. He didn't want heaven without, it was, it was just by himself, and so like, oh, it's kind of like, it's like empty, and um, I want some people to worship me, so I'm going to bring heaven down, right? It gives the idea that Jesus was needy, 
I got to have some people around me who's going to really admire me, right? I want people to love me. So I better go down there and get some people to come up and then just worship me, right? But that's not what he's talking about when we talk about God's God's goal is his glory. I'm talking about his divine love, his purpose, right? Sure, God asks to be praised for his praiseworthiness and is exalted for his greatness and his goodness. But the glory that is his goal is a two-sided, two-stage relationship. On the one side, God reveals, God reveals his glory by gracious acts of love, right? Voluntarily, out of his free generosity, he voluntarily just reveals his glory, right? And on the other side, his people respond to the revealed glory. And we respond with adoration, giving in glory, with thanksgiving for what they have seen and what they have experienced, we were made, we were created for this. Um, we were uh, made for uh, this reciprocal like, fellowship of love to behold his goodness. He reveals himself to us in his glory. And we say, wow, what an amazing, great God he is. And we respond. And Christ's redemption makes it possible for those of us who had fallen, and all of us have fallen, And our nature, true nature, is fulfilled through seeing his glory and returning praise to him, just as he is pleased to reveal his goodness to us in his love. He reveals it to us. And that we now see what he is truly like in all his splendor and majesty. You know, glory in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, is associated with value riches, splendor, and dignity. You know, when Moses asked God, or uh, when uh, Moses asked to, be, uh, to see God's glory, can I see your glory, right? He actually, what God did is he proclaimed his name. He said, let me see your glory, right? And he said, I am who I am. In other words, he revealed to Moses something of his nature character and power by stating, I am who I am. That this is who I am. I, I exist eternally. Right. I am not a created, uh, created, I'm not a creation. And I am an absolute sovereign Lord. And along with the proclamation was an awe-inspiring physical manifestation. It was just this bright cloud-like, uh, you know, it's bright, you know, this bright cloud like a burning fire. So when God's presence was, presence was right there in front of Moses, it just manifested in a physical way to see, to show him the, his glory. And this glory of God's presence was often called the Shekinah, Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. And it appeared at some important moments as a sign of God's presence. And the New Testament proclaims that the glory of God is now revealed. How how does the glory of God reveal to us? Through his son, Jesus Christ. When we see Christ, when we know Christ, when we come to understanding of who he is, 
that we have beheld, we have seen the glory of God. That is why renouncing our sin in humility and repenting and trusting in Christ as our Lord and Savior, it glorifies God. When we just, you know, when we, every time we go before Him in repentance, every time we acknowledge that He is our Lord, He's our Savior, He's our love, that we belong to Him, God is glorified. And the praise for salvation belongs to no other, no one else except God. That is why the principle of solideo gloria, you know, that glory to God alone is so important to us. The only, the glory, God is the only one who is to receive every ounce of our praise, adoration, our life has to be given over to God for his worship. And that's what uh, uh, verse 31 is talking about, right? Whether you eat or drink, whatever that you do, do all to the glory of God because God is worthy to, be, to receive all the glory and honor. And that is the enduring motive for Paul. Even though he was going through a lot of difficulties in life, he was, uh, he was you know, flogged, he was put in prison, I mean, he was, you know, stoned. And he, he just went through so much persecution. He was under constant death threat, right? I mean, for U.S. politicians, if they receive a death threat, oh, my goodness, you know, I mean, the, the secret police and, you know, they, they get activated and they're just like, whoa, you know, just we got to, you know, or even on the, the social media, if somebody just uh, threatens your life, right? Boy, you, you get really like, you know, you get really stressed and you go, uh-oh, somebody's, gonna, somebody's threatening me. But can you imagine for Paul, that his pretty much whole countrymen were against him and there were people who were sworn to kill him? Death squad that was specifically designed for you, gunning for you at all times. And yet, in all that he did, and he traveled all over the place, he endured so many hardships, so much suffering, so that he may glorify God. He will bring honor and glory to him. And this all-inclusive principle that God is to be glorified in everything we do is the main point of Paul, especially in verse, uh, chapters 8, 9, and 10. All these things, that, the instructions that Paul gave, right? It is really about the, the, in the end, he's saying, do all this whether you eat or whether it is about the meat offered to idols, in your relationship with other people, Christians, non-Christians, do all this in a way that would honor God, in a way that would glorify Him. These two principles were the bedrock of Paul's standard, standard of conduct. When we are not sure of what to do, in certain situations, because the Bible does not specifically tell us every, uh, what to do in every single situation. It doesn't. But he, uh, the scripture does give us overarching principles. So when we do not know for sure exactly how we are to carry ourselves, how we are to behave, how we are to speak, and what have you, ask 
these two questions. Does this, what I'm about to do, does this glorify God? Does it? By saying this or by doing this, does this glorify God? Does this bring honor and praise to God? And if it doesn't, then you abstain. Even though you, it may be within your rights, you may be free to do so because there's no, there's no law that's like uh, just prohibiting you from doing it. But if whatever you are about to do in certain situations, if it's not going to bring glory to God, then don't do it. That's why Paul is saying, hey, yeah. I mean, people are saying, yeah, you're free to eat the meat offered to idols. But if it really caused someone else to stumble, then don't eat it. Abstain from it. Because that's how you glorify God. And the other question is, am I seeking the good of other people over my own? Right? Ask that question. What I am about to do, is it for my own sake? Or is there another way that can benefit someone else? Is it, for, is it for the good of other people or is it just for my own good? By asking these two questions and living by these two principles, I think it can really just go a long way and it is practically impossible on our own, right? Because we are, once again, you know, self-centered people and we still struggle with sin. So on our own, left to ourselves, this is an impossible task. But when we turn to Him, when we trust in Him, and asking God to give us strength, wisdom, and discernment in, you know, in difficult situations, confusing situations, and as we seek to live by these two principles, then in the end, I believe that that will honor God. Because that's our, that if that's our heart's desire, and you know, with the, to the best of our uh, ability, if we seek and live by these two principles, that it will really honor God, and that God will be glorified. So may that be our uh, mindset. Let's pray. Let's go before the Lord. Just take a moment to uh, pray. And maybe, uh, maybe some of us may be wondering about certain situations that you may be in, like not knowing what to do, how to uh, behave, or yeah, just you don't know how to act. And maybe you, can, you may um, ask these two questions. Am I really just um, seeking the good of other people? And also, am I glorifying God by doing this this way or that way? So let's pray to the Lord for discernment and also that our heart's attitude, whether it is truly, uh, is our hearts in the right place to honor God, to glorify Him? Right, so... Take a moment to pray at this time. And Lord, we come to you as people in need of your mercy and grace. Lord, daily we face many uh, decisions that we have to make. And there are times when we do not know what to do. We feel lost, confused, unsure of what to do. But help us, God, that in all that we do, whether it is drinking, eating, or every kind of activity that we engage in, help us to seek you first. 
Help us to really live to glorify you for your honor, for your glory. And also enable us and empower us to seek the good of other people because, Lord, we are so selfish in many ways. We don't do that. It it seems as impossible with our flesh, our body, our flesh is so weak, God. But Lord, with with the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we know we can live like this. So Lord, empower us and strengthen us, challenge us to live in such a way. So through, uh, in this way, that we may truly honor you and uh, love you with our, with our hearts. So continue to lead us, continue to strengthen us during these difficult times. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.